Okay, today we get back to our study of Isaiah. We've had a couple months away, so we will start back again today. Now, we had gotten through chapter 36, and and if you want to understand chapter 37, you need an understanding of 36. So we'll spend the first 15 or 20 minutes or so of today just reviewing chapter 36. Now, um, Isaiah can be kind of divided up into three different sections. The first 35 chapters, which we have completed, is prophecy. Various prophecies of Isaiah. 36 through 39 is historical. And then 40 to 66 goes back to the prophecies of Isaiah. And we'd gotten through chapter 36, uh, which is historical, and we have not started 37 yet. Uh, so we're going to first of all review 36. And if anybody wants the notes for 36 that are right here, feel free to get them. Um, So what I'm going to do, we're going to read the text and then just read the notes. And I'll make a comment here and there. We're not really going to spend a whole lot of time on it. But to me, the best way to review it is to review the text and then just read the notes. So I'm going to read the first uh, ten verses of chapter 36. Isaiah 36. Now it came to pass in the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against the fortifications of Judah and took them. Then the king of Assyria sent to the Rabshakeh with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And he stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway of the fuller's field. And Eliakim, the son of Helkiah, who was over the household, Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to them. So Israel has sent their diplomats out to meet with Rabshakeh, which um, is a diplomat from Assyria. Then the Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this in which you trust? I say you speak of having plans and power for war, but they are mere words. Now in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Look, you are trusting in the staff of this broken reed, Egypt on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Now therefore I urge you, give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, And I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to put riders on them. How then will you repel one captain of the least of my master's servants 
and put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen. Have I now come up without the Lord against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, Go up against this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim and Shebna and Joah, Joah and the Rabshakeh said to the Rabshakeh, Okay, that, that's all I'm going to read for right there. Okay, now these four chapters, 36 through 39, are historical. It's in your notes. They're historical. And it happens around 700 B.C. I think I got 600 in your notes, but that would be closer to 700 B.C. <clears throat> At this time, the northern kingdom no longer exists. They're gone. Fortified city after fortified city had fallen in Judah. Now Sennacherib was at the gates of Jerusalem. And in your notes, evidently Hezekiah, being a good king, had taught his people to trust in the Lord as he did, and as he did, and to not fear foreign enemies like Assyria. So this trust wouldn't have been perfect, but he had basically taught his people to fear God and not other people, being a good king. Rabshakeh, or royal spokesman according to the Christian Standard Bible, tried to persuade them to surrender by stating, first of all, it was useless to rely on Egypt, which is a broken reed. It was useless to trust in Yahweh, because he was mad at Hezekiah for tearing down places of worship. That's what he didn't realize is these were unauthorized places of worship. Their army was lacking. They didn't have the riders to put on the horses. Yahweh told him to do this. He's claiming that Yahweh told him to invade the country. And no other gods have been able to stand against Assyria. That's back down in verses 18 through 20. So here was the royal spokesman of Assyria trying to tear down their faith. Their faith was in Yahweh, and he's telling them it was useless. Yahweh, why would Yahweh be able to stand up against Assyria when no other gods had been able to stand up against Assyria? Was uh, was the king of Assyria? Was Sennacherib? Was he a good student of history? <clears throat> Nobody can stand up against me. No other gods have been able to do that. Your God doesn't have the power to do it. So was Sennacherib a good student of history? Had he learned his history? No. Somebody look up uh, Romans nine seventeen. Pause here for a moment of reflection. A couple of things. Romans 9, 17. Jill, I think you've got that. It looks like it. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Okay. God raised up the mightiest king that had ever been to up to that point just to show his power to all the earth. 
that his name would be declared in all of the earth. And uh, we all know what happened to Pharaoh. So um, we see that this king of Assyria had not learned anything from history. If he would have really realized what Yahweh had done to Pharaoh, he wouldn't be boasting these arrogant words. Of course he may, because unbelievers can, uh, are incapable of learning any spiritual lessons. But he certainly did not learn from history. He certainly had not learned anything from Yahweh. And Yahweh had given him ample evidence that you don't mess with him. You don't mess with him. Now, it's what is happening here with the king of what the king of Assyria is doing is what we run into all the time. You uh, people who may be off to college someday or off to work in a pagan company one day, people are going to try to tear your faith down. They're going to try to give you reasoned arguments. Why? Your faith is in the wrong place. So this is one thing that you're going to face. And my advice to you would be that you need to learn to trust in the Lord with all your heart. The attacks on your faith may be subtle. The attacks on your faith may be head-on and very strong. But your faith will face some tests. Like these people here, their faith was facing a test. We have a very powerful king trying to tear their faith down. We'll talk about the lack of recollection of history. We'll have churches out there today that are just New Testament churches. And you look at the Old Testament and what God did for His people and the prophecies that were made that were fulfilled in the New Testament. And that's just, you know, that gives us such security and assurance that He is God. Yeah. And that all the scriptures have to do with the people. Yeah, don't throw away three quarters of God's revelation. You can't make sense out of the New Testament without the Old Testament. You just can't do it. Well, that's what Jesus spoke to the people as he walked along the road to Emmaus. Mm-hmm. He started at Moses and went through the prophets. He was saying, here's what testifies to, to me, yeah. to who I am. Yeah. Very good points. All right, I'll pick up on verse 11. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me to your master and to you to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall who will eat and drink their own waste with you? Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out with a loud voice in Hebrew and said, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given in the hands hand of the king of Assyria. <clears throat> Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make peace with me by present, 
and come out to me, and every one of you eat from its own vine, and every one from its own fig tree, and every one of you drink the waters of its own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware, lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Uh, or where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sephraim indeed? <clears throat> indeed, have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their countries from my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand. So back to the notes, and this being a public scene, the diplomats of Judah asked the diplomats of Assyria to speak in Aramaic, which would be a language the people of Judea or of Judah would not understand. Aramaic was most likely the standard diplomatic language of the time. However, they continue speaking in Hebrew. Notice how crude it gets in verse 12 and how loud he becomes in verse 13. And he even promises them wonderful things if they surrender. In other words, drinking out of a cistern instead of their own urine. So you stay here, you'll drink your own urine. You come with us, you drink out of nice cisterns. So it's what he's trying to do is to get the people to rebel against Hezekiah. And then finally in verse 22, the Judean diplomats reported all this to Hezekiah, where it says then, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shemna the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of Reb Shekah. So this is a case of fearing God rather than fearing people. And the people seem to be doing a good job of it, the people of Judah. Uh, and then I'll read this comment by Ortland, and that'll be it for 36. The key to Isaiah 36.1 to 37.7 is the taunt, in whom do you now trust? We always live on the cutting edge of faith, either faith in God or faith in something else. And yesterday's faith in God belongs to yesterday. And whom do you now trust? And the struggle you are facing now, in whom do you trust? And this reminds us of our studies in Hebrews where you have to have perseverance and endurance. It's not just a sprint. We're in a long-distance race. And this, uh, this siege lasted for years. So they had to have some perseverance and endurance. So we need to realize that for our lives, that it's going to be one assault after another. You know, the Hebrews faced the pressure to go back to the old covenant sacrifices. These people are facing pressure to go to Assyria and have their own vineyards and things like that. Okay. You know what they did there usually works. Go into the mob, go around the leadership. Yeah. Go to the mob. Yeah. 
Marble Hill. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, and you know, it's, these people, part, part of what Hezekiah could have taught them would be very well what we read in uh, Romans 9.17. Remember what God did to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about, what, 700 years ago. Your God is going to protect you. And uh, that gets back to the comment that was made about the old covenant. The God who bought Egypt, who bought Israel out of Egypt without an army is the same God who watches over us right now. The world doesn't have anybody like that. Steve? I was also thinking about the rules of engagement, rules of laws of warfare. And uh, at least at one point it seems that uh, the Assyrians were at least following God's law in that when they were approaching their enemy and saying, you know, we're going to do this thing, here's your chance. You yeah. know? Uh, although it wasn't a just war. Yeah. I mean, that's the foundation first, but it made me think about Putin and Russia and all they've done. They didn't really say, you know, we're going to do this, uh, we'll give you a chance to surrender, all that kind of thing. Just uh, yeah. a little different. Yeah, oh, um, <clears throat> the Assyrians, they were following God's law and giving them a chance to surrender and all that, but it definitely was not to honor God. <laughs> I like the broken... Yeah. All right. Any other comments on chapter thirty-six, which is necessary to understand before we go to thirty-seven? Are there yes. more sheets for thirty-seven? Yes, there is. Y'all, y'all only have page thirty-nine, right? Yeah. yeah. I'm going to get past thirty-nine. One left. Anybody else need page thirty-nine? Page 39, chapter 37. All right, and so this continues the <clears throat> account of Isaiah 36. And uh, we will start over here with Jeffrey today. I'm going to read for us the first seven verses. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Elikim, who was over the household, and Shimna, the secretary, and the senior priests covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amoz. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of Rebshekah, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus said, said the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the young men of the 
king of Assyria, have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by his sword and so on. Now, um, this is a continuation. Um, they had come, these uh, diplomats had come back to Isaiah and reported to him the things that they had been told by the king of Assyria. And then Hezekiah also tears his clothes. <clears throat> Alright, here in your notes, Hezekiah, here's the report of his diplomats in verse 1. And again, compared to what he does in this chapter with what his faith, faithless father did in Isaiah 7. You want to go back and read that. Remember, this happens at the same place if you compare 36.2 with Isaiah 7. Um, the, his faithless father, Ahaz, um, I think it was, he, he had no faith. Bottom line is he just said he acted faithless in everything he did. Hezekiah acts with faith. Now upon hearing the report, Hezekiah does the following things. He goes in the morning. He bears his clothes. He covers himself with sackcloth. So he goes in the morning. He sends Eliakim, Shebna, and the leading priest to Isaiah to inquire of God in verse 2. Um, they want to know what God has to say about the situation. That would be equivalent to us getting into a bad situation <clears throat> and going to the Scriptures. So he's doing the right thing. And then we will see later on in the chapter, he takes it to the Lord in prayer. He mourns, he inquires of Isaiah, and he goes to the Lord in prayer. So Isaiah's response is that Hezekiah and his people is that they not fear. Um, we see in verse 7 where he says, Isaiah said to them, Thus shall you say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid of the words which you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Surely I'll send a spirit upon him, he'll hear a rumor, return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. And then just to kind of give away the ending, looking at the end of the chapter, the last two verses, now Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home and remained at Nineveh, now it came to pass as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, his sons Adramalek and Sherezer, Sherezer struck him down with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Aram. Then Esasharon, his son, reigned in his place. Notice he was assassinated right in front of his impotent god. He was mocking Israel, Judah, saying, your God is impotent. Nobody can stand up against my God. But then he goes back and worships in front of his God, and he is struck dead. And we see which God is impotent, has zero power 
Lord God possesses all power in heaven and on earth. Okay. And we see in verses 8 through 14, 8 through 13, that the Assyrian army gets sidetracked. That they assure Hezekiah that they're going to return. Okay. Let's pick up with verse 14. Uh, Travis, if you'll read us 14 through 20. Beautiful prayer here. Hezekiah goes to the Lord in prayer. And he notes he goes to the Lord in prayer. He lays out Rabshakeh's letter before God as saying, Look how he's blasting you. He just lays it down. Look how they blast how he's blasphemed blasphemed you, O Lord. Your name has been blasphemed. So he notes the following in verse 16 in his prayer about Yahweh. He, note, he notes the Lord's strength, saying that He is the Lord of hosts. The Christian Standard Bible translates it, He is the Lord of armies. It's Yahweh Sabaoth. The Lord of a mighty army is the idea behind it. And, and then, uh, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. So he is Israel's God, as opposed to the false God of the pagans. The God of Assyria is a work of men's hands. It has, he has no power. The Lord God is enthroned. You can see in Psalm 99, talking about the enthronement of Yahweh. He dwells between the cherubim. He is enthroned. He is God. He alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. So He is no local deity. Lord God is not the Lord and God of Judah alone. He is the Lord and God of all the earth. So he lays out a pretty powerful prayer comparing Yahweh, the God of all the earth, as compared to the local deity of Assyria. Okay, now, 
From verse 17 to verse 20, this is his argument. He says, please note the situation in verse 17. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Lord, just listen to his words. That's all I ask. Just listen to his words. And the second part of the argument is, look at what they have. This is not a formal argument. This is just this pleading before God. Look at what they have done to the pagans and their gods in verse 18 and 19. The kings of Assyria have laid waste to all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they have, they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they destroyed them. So, he is saying, look at what they've done to the pagans and to the pagans' gods. And then finally in verse 20, Now therefore, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord and you alone. He's saying, save us so that you will be glorified and distinguished from the pagan gods. Have we run out of notes? That's the end of 39. Here's page 40. I didn't really think we were getting that far. And that last statement in chapter 20, in verse 20, where it says that they may know that you are the Lord, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord, you alone. Very similar to the language we saw when God brought up Israel out of Egypt. All the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are Lord. So he is asking God to make the most of the opportunity. Or do you have a good opportunity here to glorify yourself? To be glorified through the destruction of the wicked. Just like you were glorified in at the Red Sea through the destruction of the wicked, you have opportunity here to do the same. Please do it. So we see the prayer of Hezekiah. A mighty prayer. And the bottom line of the prayer is, God, here's a perfect chance for you to get glory. All right, now verses 21 through 29. Jill, that will be for you. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning him. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, he has despised you, he has despised you, laughed you to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head behind your back. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? 
against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes on high, against the Holy One of Israel. By your servants you have reproached the Lord and said, By the multitude of my chariots I have come up to the height of the mountains, to the limits of Lebanon. I will cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypress trees. I will enter its farthest height to its, uh, to its fruitful forest. I have dug and drunk water with the soles of my feet. I have dried up all the brooks of defense. Did you not hear long ago how I made it from the ancient times that I formed it? Now I have brought it to pass that you should be for crushing fortified cities into heaps of ruins. Therefore, their inhabitants had little power. They were dismayed and confounded. They were as the grass of the field and the green herb, as the grass on the housetops, the grain blighted before it is grown. But I know your dwelling place, your going out and your coming in, and your rage against me. Because your rage against me and your tumult has come up to my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips, and I will turn you back by the way which you came. This shall be a sign of Okay, that's good. That's good. So the summary of this is God tells Sennacherib, you don't know who you're dealing with. You're acting in total ignorance. So in verse 21, Isaiah sends word to Hezekiah that God will answer his prayer. He speaks of prophecy concerning Sennacherib. The virgin daughter is Jerusalem, verse 22, and she rightly despises the Assyrians. And so God informs Sennacherib these things that he is not waging war against pagan idols, but against the Holy One of Israel. And they, verse 23, you just don't realize who you're going up against. And he is guilty of mocking and reproaching the Lord, Yahweh. He's reproached, he's blasphemed. And he has arrogantly boasted in verses 24 and 25. You're an arrogant little thing. He has succeeded so far only because of the decree of God and God knows everything He has done and said. I I not only know what you've done and said and what's going to happen to you, I have decreed it. You're just a pawn in my hand. Just like Pharaoh was. You're less than nothing. You're less than a drop in the bucket. And he is headed for utter defeat. Verses 26 through 29. You dare come up against me? You are less than nothing. You are headed for destruction. And that's just what people that rage against the church now They don't know who they are raging against. And Christians, if only Christians would realize that the same God that delivered Hezekiah, the same God that delivered Israel out of Egypt, is the same God that is over the church now. And Jesus Christ, fully God, has said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I have that authority that Yahweh had in the Old Testament. It's one and the same. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And then he says, look, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. So this same God is with us and He has promised to be with us to the end of the world and He has given us very clear instructions. Okay, so there is no reason for Christians to bow down to get stepped on for Jesus as Gary North always says. We're not going to get stepped on for Jesus any longer. All right, finally, Mike, finish out the chapter for us, if you will, beginning in verse 30. Then this shall be a sign for you. You will eat this year what grows of itself, in the second year what springs from the same, and in the third year sow, reap, plant vineyards, and eat their fruit. The surviving remnant of the house of Judah will again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem will go forth a remnant, and out of Mount Zion survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he will not come to this city or shoot an arrow there. He will not come before it with a shield or throw up a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, by the same he will return. He will not come to this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Then the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men arose early in the morning, behold, all these were dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. It came about as he was worshiping the house of Nisroch, his god, that Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, killed him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esharhaddon, his son, became king in his place. All right, in verse 30, God informs Hezekiah that he will preserve him and the remnant through this long siege. It appears the siege lasted about three or four years. So they had to have a little bit of endurance, a little bit of perseverance. And the surviving remnant will be fruitful, according to verses 31 32. I'm not only going to save you, but you're going to be fruitful. And then God is going to defend the city and save it for his own sake and show his covenantal faithfulness to David. So God remembers his promises, God fulfills his promises. And then in verses 36 through 38, show that God kept his promise. A large number of the Assyrian soldiers die. Sennacherib returns to Assyria and is promptly assassinated. Yahweh saved his people. Sennacherib was murdered in front of his helpless God. Beautiful, beautiful chapter in Isaiah showing Yahweh going up against paganism. Those two chapters to me are beautiful. Any questions or comments on anything that happens in those two? Oh, that we as Christians would be as dedicated to the one true living God as the king of Syria was to his folks of God. This, these two chapters, if, if they are read very carefully, 
would embarrass a lot of Christians. The way we act now compared to the way we should act. I really like the part where the bad guys all wake up dead. That's right. They have to wake up dead. The sermon of John MacArthur crossed my path earlier this week, and he was talking about this kind of thing in, in today's society. He said, as Christians, we can be grateful for what's happening because the pagans have so revealed themselves with laws and chaos and inconsistencies that if we stick to God's word and put that out, it will be obviously God's word. There, there's no confusion. And this does give an opportunity for God to reveal his strength and might and, and restore a nation if he should want to in the United States. We don't know that he will, but uh, Christians should actually take, be taking advantage mm -hmm. of what we're seeing in society because we've got the truth. Uh, the way we Christians are acting in this country, while God wants to save it. <clears throat> Basically, the Christians in this country right now are compared to what we should be. It's time for us to wake up. It's time for us to realize the importance of the Great Commission. These are commands. And Jesus says, you've got everything you need. All you got to do is go out and do what I tell you to do. All right. Um, Mike, close us up in prayer, please. Yeah. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for, for this uh, day of the week, the first day of the week.